and welcome to 13, the bi-weekly podcast that asks questions of Colgate University community members. I am your host, Daniel DeVries, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming to the program Associate Professor of History and Director of Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies, Noor Khan. Khan has been at Colgate since 2003 and has earned a number of distinctions during her time here, including serving as a Council for American Research Centers Abroad Fellow, an American Research Center in Egypt Fellow, and a Fulbright Research Scholar in 2008. Her research interests include national and transnational identity in Egypt and the Arab world, political and social violence in the modern Middle East and South Asia, memory and identity in the partition of India and Palestine, and Islam and identity in the 20th century. Khan earned her bachelor's degree, her master's degree, and her PhD from the University of Chicago. Welcome to 13. Hi, Dan. Yeah, sometimes it's a little scary when people say that because the word for people who do that is lifer. Um, (laughs) But that's a good thing. uh, Yeah, I guess. Um, Certainly the University of Chicago is an excellent place to study the Middle East and many other topics. Um, I am particularly uh, excited about um, the fact that so many of my um, colleagues are also from the University of Chicago because we kind of pride ourselves on being the teacher of teachers. Hmm, Interesting. Well, I want to start at the top here and um, very curious about the history of the Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies program at Colgate. Okay. Well, I can tell you a lot about that because I was one of the people who founded it. Um, The Middle East and Islamic Studies program, which we all call MIST, Mm -hmm. uh, was founded uh, right very shortly after I got here. I was partially um, the position that was created um, uh, for me to come here was partially because uh, September 11th happened, of course, and universities all over the country went, well, do we have anybody who actually does this part of the world? And here at Colgate, we had the still very much missed Omid Safi in the religion department And that year, we had gotten Bruce Rutherford in the poli-sci department. And so when I came, uh, there was somebody in the history department. At the same time, Daniel Monk came in the peace and conflict studies, and he now teaches, has been for quite a while, teaching a really um, deep look at the Israel-Palestine conflict, which is super popular. And in the next few years, we got a few more people And as luck would have it, my husband was doing a degree in teaching Arabic. So we got an Arabic program started and um, pretty soon we had the – a core that was able to start the MIST minor. Uh, There weren't enough of us to really have a major and we didn't know if we'd have enough students to Mm. have a major. But the MIST minor was founded in 2004. And it was pretty popular from day one. Remember, it was 2004. We were literally had boots on the ground all over the Middle East. We still have boots on the ground all over the Middle East. We're just paying attention to other things at the moment. So once we started the minor and it 
became more popular. We had more people added, and uh, they're offering all sorts of wonderful things. Uh, right now, we also have our Islamic scholar, Megan Abbas, who is a specialist in Indonesia, um, which is new for us. When we started, we were really Middle East focused because mm. that's who was here. But now we are having a lot more um, availability of courses. Um, we have uh, courses as well on India. And I think one of the big things that we are super proud of is our students have been really committed, excited. We have students winning Fulbrights and other national scholarships such as the Boren or the CLS, the Critical Language Scholarship, and things like that. Pretty much every year, MIST can be counted on to have one or two of our students win hmm. national scholarships. Uh, and we've sent students to everywhere. The program became a major in 2014 when we were uh, 10 years old. Uh, and since then, we've had students uh, study in all sorts of uh, places. Obviously, that was disrupted with, you know, the Arab Spring and then a worldwide pandemic. But we have had a number of students study in, uh, in particular, Egypt and Morocco, but also Turkey, which they can't do right now, and uh, various other places that uh, we count as studying uh, for the MIST program. We also have had a number of students do summer programs uh, in various places. Right now, we are sending students to both Egypt and Jordan this year. And we have students who have done work in um, various NGOs. We have students who work for the government, a number of whom we're not allowed to ask them what they do, <laughs> which is always fun when we get uh, someone checking on security clearances. Sure. Uh, and of course, we have students who've uh, gone on to do many things that aren't directly Middle East related, but very much connected. Hmm. One of the main things that we struggle with here is we're kind of in the middle of upstate New York. And uh, sometimes that makes it difficult for uh, getting specialists. Sometimes it makes it a little bit more difficult for students to practice foreign language. We're working very hard to to build coalitions and connections with other schools in the area, particularly through the Humanities Corridor and the NY6. Uh, but I would say that's probably one of the things that uh, MIST finds most challenging nowadays. Mm. One of the things that we're super proud of is the fact that we are a source for information uh, in the region. We regularly have different faculty members teaching, uh, doing talks that are open to the public, inviting people. We've also had different people um, teach in the lifelong learning uh, program. Uh, that's a great program. Can you just explain that for a minute for folks yeah. who might not know what it is? Yeah, the Lifelong Learning Program is uh, hosted here in Hamilton, and uh, the amazing folks there basically set up, I think it's biweekly, um, a 
a talk by various experts, many of them from Colgate, who basically teach a mini class on the topic. And uh, my experience doing that was very positive. Uh, I had a full room of many very interested uh, um, citizens. Most of them were uh, retired and super um, excited to tell me their memories of events in the Middle East that mm -hmm. I was too young to remember. I am curious, um, MIST or the Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies Program, um, having become a major in 2014, probably one of our more recent majors. Very recent, yes. Can you talk about the process of, of becoming ma a major? How does an academic program become a major at Colgate? Well, that's actually really interesting. It's uh, a rather long process that requires the faculty to get together and figure out what their priorities are hammer out the requirements, but um, after that, it, it goes to the DAC and the, What's a DAC? Uh, the uh, Dean's Advisory Committee, Council. Council? Council. I'm going to say Council. Okay. I'll Google it. Um, and uh, once they see it as viable, and that is one of the major issues is do they see it as viable? Will it bring students who want to major in it? And secondly, does it have enough faculty involved to keep it sustainable? Once they decide that it is viable and something that the university as a whole wants to support, it's actually um, something that has to go to the New York um, Department of Education. Mm -hmm. The um, NYSED has to get all of the information, including the CVs of all the professors involved and a number of other things in order to approve it. That sometimes takes a little bit of time. Uh, actually, one of the weirdest problems we had in getting that done, because I was the one doing, um, doing that at the time, was that there's a particular pin that NYSED gives to each university in order to upload things. And this pin was used rarely enough that it took a while to find somebody who had it <laughs> on campus. Um, so these are the weird uh, uh, adventures of uh, academia. But once that's approved, then um, we're at nine years of having majors and we'll be celebrating our 10th year um, soon. Uh, we're at eight years, I guess. Um, and uh, the program has had its ups and downs, most of them more related to the fact that it was started so recently and therefore the cadre that started it all came up for tenure and then leaves at about the same time. Mm. So we went through a few years where we literally were short mm. a number of people and that really hurt the program. And I think that that's something that we have to be really aware of. Now we've got a few new people mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, we need a little bit of generational variety in order to make sure that we don't end up having um, entire uh, sections of our requirements not manned um, or womaned, as it, as the case may be. 
what goes in so to to major in Middle Eastern and Islamic studies? What kind of courses do students need to take? Is is language part of that? Oh yes, language is part of that, and it's actually a, a pretty demanding part of that because uh, the only Middle Eastern language that we teach on campus is um, Arabic and, of course, Hebrew. Um, and uh, we require four quarters of four quarters, four semesters of uh, one of these languages. And um, that is the reason we decided on that much was you really need that much to be able to read a newspaper article mm -hmm. or something like that. And um, the uh, international relations program that has a number of students double majoring with uh, uh, that our students double major with also requires two years of a non-Western language if you're going to do a non-European language. If you're going to do a European language, it's three. Okay. Um, but we – so we have students taking uh, – two full years of Arabic, a large number of our students actually continue and do two, do three to four years oh, wow. of Arabic and are able to – it's actually something we're super proud of because we do have students who go to Middlebury and regularly test into the – even higher than the normal level. We're competitive. Our Arabic program is competitive with most – universities that have PhDs in Arabic available. Hmm. Uh, for the double majors, I'm curious. Yeah. Is the, the requirement for each major separate or can they be combined? Um, you can't combine more than uh, one course. I see. Okay. Uh, but you can double – depending on the major, you can double count a course. And if, if you're a new student at Colgate who's never taken Arabic before, uh -huh. can you pick it up oh, by, yes. by starting we have here? A, yes. We have a brand you – know, we start from zero. Wow. Most people start with nothing. We've had uh, a number of students uh, at this point write a paper in Arabic if they reach um, fourth year level uh, and a number of students, you know, have taken one or two years before they go abroad. And so they are quite functional when they get to um, abroad. The other uh, requirements of the program uh, of the uh, major in Middle East studies are a course in the social sciences of the region, a course in the humanities of the region, uh, and a course in the historical context of the region, plus at least two more courses and um, what we call our gateway, which is changing, uh, but it was the uh, core Middle East, core communities of the Middle East, but with our actual Colgate core changing, this gateway course may change as well. Okay. So I wanted to talk about Turkey. I'm going to say, what was it, around 2013 or 2014? It was, 20, it was 2013. Okay. You took some students to Turkey. Correct. Um, tell me about that trip. Uh, what was the genesis behind it? And um, I guess, uh, yeah, I'm just curious uh, how many students went. What, what were you trying to learn in Turkey? Well, um, when we went to Turkey, that actually was not a missed program, but I, um, an initiative of the chaplaincy that had – uh, decided to do, they've done multiple interfaith trips. Uh, this particular trip was organized by Rabbi Dina Bodian, who has since uh, gone on to Wellesley. And uh, 
that was uh, a well, I believe we had 15 students. It's been a while. Uh, but it was really to explore the, the uh, religion, the Abrahamic religions and their history in Turkey. So mm. that included quite a bit of looking at mosques and Islamic sites, but we also went to Jewish sites and Christian sites, including the possible burial place of Mother Mary and uh, a place where um, St. Paul read his letter. Um, so uh, it was it was quite amazing. I'll tell the truth. I was exhausted for most of it, but that's because I had, with my husband, taken a trip that literally three months earlier, less than three months earlier, and taken students to Egypt for the first time in Colgate history. So oh. we had t- done an extended study to Egypt where we spent three weeks um, uh, taking students around Egypt. and then, oh, Tell me about that trip, too. Okay. Yeah. Well, that trip was um, – we, we really wanted to do that again, but then there was, you know, uh, a number of reasons why we were unable to do that. But that trip was right after Arab Spring, and it was during the year before um, – the elections. So technically the country was under the control of the Supreme Council of the military, um, of the armed forces. And uh, it was very nerve wracking for a number of people, particularly Colgate lawyers, um, for us to go. But because of the um, wonderful support we got from the study abroad office, we did end up being able to take our students with a lot of, you know, like you cannot go out and do whatever the hell you want. Yeah. The students were amazing. They were very aware that they were representing Colgate and America and they were – what they did was going to make a difference for future Colgate students. So uh, we went to Alexandria um, and uh, that included ancient Roman ruins uh, and – um, a very nice uh, dinner on the ocean. Uh, we went all over uh, Cairo, but the, the name of the course was Living Egypt. Mm. And so while we went to a number, obviously we went to the pyramids, you can't go to Egypt and not go to the pyramids, but um, the, the focus of the class was really to see the Egypt that exists today. So we... Um, we went to an orphanage and uh, the students played with uh, young um, children in, there and actually um, had a very good time. They went to dinner with the language partners we had set up. We'd gotten people, young people from Egypt to partner with uh, our students, so they went to dinner at their homes. We uh, went to a factory for making juice because Egypt is one of the big fruit producers in the region. Hmm. And so one of the biggest factories for juice was uh, uh, there. We decided that looking at the industrial um, portion of what Egypt is dealing with uh, was important. Students love that part too. Um, uh, And not just because they all managed to get hats with Johanna written across the top in Arabic. but uh, that was a wonderful, wonderful trip. And then we came back and, you know, uh, for spring break, I went uh, 
to Istanbul uh, and environs with um, the chaplaincy. So by the time I end, hit the end of spring 2013, I was wiped out. <laughs> uh, since then, uh, uh, our Arabic instructor, Nadi, has taken students to uh, Morocco three times. And uh, we really wanted to do an extended study in Turkey, uh, but the political situation right now is such that uh, the Colgate lawyers and the State Department really don't want us to do that. So we're going to be waiting on that. Have we been able to go back to Egypt? No, we haven't. That is uh, partially um, the political situation. Uh, of course, COVID disrupted things. Uh, but it's also a question of having professors willing to do the kind of work that goes into taking students abroad to these places. And um, one of the major things that uh, a lot of people don't understand is that when you go to non-European, uh, non uh, less developed places, it is a far less structured uh, environment in many cases. Bank transfers aren't that obvious. Um, you can't just get money from an ATM depending mm. on the country. You have to have plans. For example, um, in Egypt, because of the situation, we literally paid for uh, an armed officer to be with us at all times. Not because we thought we'd need it, but because it made everybody feel better to know that there was an officer that was a answering to the police with us. Mm. Um, and uh, so it, it, it really is a ridiculous amount of work. On the last uh, Morocco trip, we had a student get very ill, lose like two and a half weeks of uh, their time there, and they were in the hospital in the ICU for most wow. of that. So things like that. We also had a student to land in Egypt, in the Egypt trip, and be diagnosed with uh, mono oh, the geez. following day. Um, she spent a lot of that trip asleep in the backseat of the bus. Um, we felt really bad about that. But, you know, the, the amount of responsibility and um, work that goes into setting up uh, trips to places that do not have the same sort of facilities and are not integrated into the um, the developed world's money and health and other systems mm -hmm. is a lot more work. Mm -hmm. so. Is there a place that you think um, you would like to take students in MIST that you haven't been able to go yet? Oh, there's so many. Uh, uh, we do have students that have gone to the United Arab Emirates. We have students uh, who've gone to Oman. I've never been to Oman. Uh, and I'd love to take students back to Egypt. Uh, my own um, kind of pet uh, plan is to have an extended study to Turkey to add on to my Ottoman history course. Mm. Uh, and um, another thought that um, I've played around with is uh, doing a course to southern Spain and Morocco, looking at the history of Al-Andalus, the 800-some years that uh, at least parts of Spain were Arabic-speaking, hmm. and connect that. Uh, 
I don't know about taking students, but I know my husband and I have really wanted to go to Malta, not just because it's supposedly gorgeous, but because Maltese is the only descendant language of Arabic. Really? I did not know that. Yeah. Arabic doesn't have descendants the way most languages as old as it do, Hmm. largely because the Quran being in Arabic means that it's been solidified in a certain way. Hmm. And so there's lots and lots of dialects of Arabic, most of many of which are in unintelligible to the other. So that like I don't understand anyone in Morocco or Tunisia. Um and when they speak their native tongue. Nobody speaks what is called modern standard Arabic as their native tongue. That is only used for writing reading, and then speaking in formal situations. What you speak with your parents and your household is a dialect of Arabic, and there's you know lots of them. Uh, the only, normally a dialect would become a separate language, as did happen with Latin. Once the monopoly on, of Latin on religious truth was broken, so that you had the Gutenberg Bible and uh, basically the access to divine truth became available through local vernaculars. Um, you had all these other languages, uh, all these other dialects become separate languages. Uh, interesting fact, the first encyclopedia um, the, of the Spanish language, the first dictionary, was made in 1492. Hmm. Um, and so Latin became, you know, all the Romance languages, French, Spanish, mm-hmm. Romanian, uh, Italian. Uh, but in the case of Arabic, only Maltese actually unhooked uh, from Arabic enough to become a separate language. And that is largely because the Maltese people were Christian. The language was Arabic, but the majority of the people were Christian. So, which is not to say that Christians don't speak Arabic. At least 20% of Arabic speakers in the world are Christian, but they're within milieus in which the dominant lang- the dominant religion in the region is um, Islam, and therefore the language never actually unhooks completely from the standard. That's fascinating. You know, I was wondering... Um, with the World Cup uh, being in Qatar this year, um, there's a number of conversations going on that probably have been going on for a very long time um, uh-huh. outside of the press. Uh-huh. But now that obviously uh, football or uh-huh. soccer is uh, uh, there, there's uh, you know a lot of talk about uh, Qatar's treatment of people from LGBTQ uh-huh. I- identities. It makes me wonder um, about travel with Colgate students to places that might not be as accepting uh, as the states? And how is that handled? Like how how do students prepare for going to a place that may or may not be friendly to their identity? Um, that has been an issue. And uh, obviously it would be great if we could change the entire world. Sure. But uh, that is not the case. And in general, what we have to tell students is there are countercultures everywhere. You can find them. Whether or not it's safe to find them is a decision you have to make, especially recognizing you're not living there. You're a guest. You may be there for three weeks or three months. You're not going to be there longer than six months most of the time. To what extent 
are you willing to um, risk social approbation or even legal issues? Mm -hmm. And we really, really encourage students, no matter whether we think those laws are great or not, to follow local laws. Mm -hmm. um, now, when it comes to um, the students that we have sent abroad, some of them have noted this less on the LGBTQ issue, which may be more uh, their decision not to uh, tell us. Uh, so we have had students have, um, we've had uh, Asian students, students of Asian descent, feel very uncomfortable um, while studying in Egypt sometimes, uh, the assumption that they are not American, their insistence they're not really American, or that, um, you know, various things. One of the most interesting, usually minor issues that we've had is left-handedness. Oh. Left-handedness is still socially a problem in many countries of the world, um, and in particular, eating with your left hand makes, can make, uh, your host family uncomfortable or can make other people make comments mm. that can make uh, many students feel nervous. And that, that actually has happened with our students. Actually, when I first went to Cairo way back in 1994, Joe Logan, who's out there somewhere. Hi, Joe. Um, he's a, a, a journalist now, but um, in the first week we were in Cairo, the fact that he's left-handed was commented upon many times, and he had to really work to figure out how to eat in public around people uh, with his left hand. So um, most of the students that have studied abroad have had a wonderful time, even with some of these issues. Mm -hmm. But as long as we're talking about Qatar, uh, I'd like to make a couple of statements, which— Perfect. Uh, I think that the fact that Qatar is not particularly LGBTQ friendly um, is not news and uh, is obviously something that the Qatari people, or more precisely, the people in Qatar, 90% of whom are not Qatari, have to deal with. Um, but a more concerning fact to me when it comes to human rights is the fact that that vast majority of the population are guest workers with very few legal rights. And many of them, including the vast majority that built all those amazing stadiums, um, worked under conditions that I would call slave labor. And the number of deaths that took place while these stadiums were being built were that were not investigated or were called natural deaths because heat exhaustion is a natural death if you have to work in 120 degrees without, you know, a break. Um, things like this are things that actually really disappoint me that the world didn't make a fuss about. Mm. Uh, and this is actually working against us in many ways in that the region sees the West make a fuss about LGBTQ rights, but not about the poor and the helpless, while 
LGBTQ rights, while important, are not being um, demanded in the same way by the people there for whatever reasons they have. Uh, And so I'd really like to see us talk a lot more about the larger human rights questions uh, that take place that are an issue in in Qatar and other uh, Gulf states. Mm. In October, mm-hmm. you were part of a group that brought uh, members of the Syrian Emergency Task Force to campus um, for a panel discussion titled Exposing War Crimes in Syria and the Connection to the Ukraine Crisis. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, um, I first became acquainted with the Syrian Emergency Task Force well, I mean, I'd heard of them before uh, through being uh, in the field that I'm in. But one of our students, Giselle Wong, who is not a MIST student but an IR student. Uh, international relations. International relations student uh, had um, interned for them. And in the course of uh, dis- trying to bring what's called the Caesar exhibit to Colgate, Um, Giselle had reached out to me, and uh, last year we brought the Caesar exhibit, which is a horrifying (laughs) exhibit of many, many pictures. I believe he had more than uh, 20,000 pictures uh, uh, that were taken by a member of the Syrian military police Uh, as part of his job documenting the deaths from torture of Syrian civilians during the Syrian Civil War. And he had uh, arranged to basically get these pictures out to show the world the extent of war crimes taking place in Syria and managed to get out with um, all these pictures. And these pictures were really important in Um, prosecutions in The Hague, in uh, the U.S. passing a law holding um, Syrian war criminals uh, accountable. And uh, this exhibit, uh, which is co-sponsored from not just the Syrian Emergency Task Force, but the U.S. Holocaust Museum and others, uh, Giselle and I basically arranged to make sure that they would be exhibited here on campus, and the MIST program hosted a panel on them, which was so well attended and so so energizing to the students. Um, I had students write, you know, it was extra credit, wasn't required, and the extra credit uh, write-ups were just stunning. And I did have... Uh, a survivor of torture in the um, in the Syrian uh, of the Syrian regime, Kuteba uh, Idlibi, speak to my class. And again, you know, class of thirty kids, you could hear a pin drop. They were really, really interested. A number of them volunteered to help, and so I was like, "We need to bring them back." And so we did this year. And this year with the awareness of what's going on in Ukraine and um, my own awareness that there were connections, I asked 
uh, Vanessa at uh, SETF to to look into whether we could talk about that. And she went above and beyond. And so our two panelists that um, spoke uh, from the Syrian Emergency Task Force included Omar al-Shogre, a very young but amazingly brave young uh, man who um, survived three years in uh, Syrian prisons and uh, more than that, actually. Um, and uh, Olga Lotman, who is the founder of the Kremlin Files podcast, a very big deal in Eastern European, uh, for f- people who follow um, issues of Russia and Eastern European uh, pol- politics. And so the two of them came, and we managed to get our own amazing Nancy Reese who is a small force for speaking up against Russian aggression on her own. Yes, for for regular listeners of the podcast, you probably remember um, Professor Reese talking about her time uh, with the Russian mafia uh, several Exactly, the thugocracy, et cetera. Um, And so that panel, uh, again, very well attended. Uh, Our rest, our Russian and Eurasian Studies Department was extremely excited. All of them, I think, showed up. Um, And uh, we had a lot of students um, recognize how not only is there physical and demonstrable military and uh, financial connections between the Syrian regime and the Russian regime, but also the larger issue of how our our foreign policy often is looking for the path of least resistance, the um, easier solutions that often work against our own long-term interests because it's a hell of a lot harder to defend long-term interests that are things like promoting democracy or you know safeguarding human rights how many how many lives are we willing to put on the ground for that how many dollars are those things worth as opposed to let's just move this particular terrorist group out of this territory but not touch any of the others because they aren't a direct threat to the United States but they are a direct threat to the region and to human rights. Interesting. Makes sense? Yeah. Oh, it absolutely makes sense. Okay. Um, I guess where do you see um, – this is question 13. Yeah. We're at the end. Uh-huh. Um, where do you see um, the program going in the, the change of the global order, right? I feel like – or if it's not a change in global order, it's a change in global focus by the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um Where do you see the MIST program going? Areas where you would like to see more courses, um, different focus? Is there certain areas that are not as, um, I guess, as popular or as uh, in demand? Uh, You know, I guess, how do you see the program evolving? That's an excellent question, Dan, and one that is very much in flux right now. Obviously, we have significant gaps because we're a very small school and a very small program, uh, and we're dependent on who is here at Colgate and who chooses to be part of the program. Uh, one of the major things that I see us needing 
uh, is um, more specialization in um, immigration and refugee issues, mm. migration and refugee issues. We do have one specialist, Sally Bonet, in education, but um, it, the medical and political and uh, social issues uh, that are connected to the fact that the largest movements of populations in the world um, include uh, Afghanistan and Syria, include um, problems that are, you know, have been happening for decades in the Middle East, need to get addressed more in our um, uh, in our little corner of the of upstate. Another area that. I personally feel very strongly um, we need to look into is the environmental issue. Mm. With the way the U.S. is going, there's this idea that somehow the um, issues of the Middle East will be less pressing. There's a belief that somehow normalization of Arab countries' connections with Israel will solve uh, one of our major problems or that the current war in Ukraine uh, demands that we not think so much about military issues in the Middle East, I think is misguided. Um, the fact that Arab countries are normalizing relations with Israel does not actually solve the Palestinian issue, which continues to be an issue and will not stop being an issue anytime soon. The fact that right now, um, there's one of the worst humanitarian catastrophes on the planet taking place in Yemen, just out, fell out of the front page, but it's still there. And when we talk about environmental issues, the next war in the Middle East is not going to be about oil. It's going to be about water. And I don't think I need to explain to American listeners that water is going to be the problem everywhere, not just in the Middle East. It's already a problem in the United States. And there's an awful lot of connection uh, with climate change and water shortages and the migration of people and the wars in the Middle East. And I think we're going to have to really turn our, our attention to how those things are connected. I will take that class. It's fascinating. <laughs> uh, Professor Khan, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you having me, Dan. And hopefully next time we travel, you can come along. Uh, I am there. That sounds awesome. Okay. Uh, tell your friends and family about the podcast. Uh, if you have any questions, feel free to write to 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13 the number. And until next time, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications and Events. Episodes are recorded on campus in Lathrop Hall. Executive Producer, Colgate Vice President for Communications and Events, L. Hazel Jack. Producer and host, Dan DeVries. And audio production by Brian Ness. Learn about all the happenings at Colgate at colgate.edu, colgatemagazine.com, and colgateresearchmagazine.com.